Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, August the 27th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, August the 30th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 71st post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show, we seek to bring light into the darkness created by our mainstream media's pejorative presentation of U.S. foreign policy that hides real truths of its negative impacts on majority populations worldwide and instead falsely promotes our foreign interventions as noble causes in defense of promoting democracy. Tonight, we are blessed to have as our guest the distinguished professor of chemical engineering and Middle East expert, Dr. Mohammed Sahimi. Our focus continues to include U.S. Afghanistan foreign policy issues and history, but also will focus on the unfair presentation of Iran by our government and our mainstream media. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are very excited and blessed to have a returning guest, Dr. Mohammed Sahimi, who is going to join us very shortly to speak to issues of tonight's show. This show is being pre-recorded on Friday, August the 27th, to be replayed live on August the 30th, Monday, 2021 at 6 p.m. I wanted to start off by suggesting that bringing light into darkness, and the darkness is really so many of the misrepresentations our government, led by both Republicans and Democrats, feeds us specifically to foreign policy issues with respect to that. That is what this show is all about, foreign policy issues. But it could not do what it does as far as misleading the American public without the cooperation of the mainstream media. These falsehoods are sometimes not absolute. Sometimes they're just exaggerations. Many times it's combined with omissions of important information that contradicts the narrative. And none of that, none of that is called out by our media time and time again. Matt Taibbi, the former Rolling Stone writer, wrote a piece on August 23rd, just a few days ago, 2021, entitled, We Failed Afghanistan, Not the Other Way Around. 
and he cited the coverage of the Afghanistan by MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and called her out. Maddow did a whole piece in which she claims a significant reason that all this U.S. investment of 20 years into Afghanistan didn't materially change anything was because, quote, what we put into Afghanistan was shoveled off and diverted by the boatload by a fanatically corrupt elite, end quote. But Taibbi appropriately calls her out by suggesting from Vietnam, he writes, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, the pattern of American officials showering questionable political allies abroad with armfuls of cash is a long-established practice. But the idea that this is the reason the missions fail is a continuation of the original propaganda lines that get us into these messes. He goes on to say, it's a way of saying the subject populations are to blame for undermining our noble efforts when the missions themselves are often preposterous. And moreover, the lion's share of the looting is usually done by our own marauding contracting community, which Maddow does not even mention in the piece. He goes on to say that Maddow and MSNBC played a big part in the warmongering issue of delaying the withdrawal last year from Afghanistan with hype on the bogus bounty gate story, the Russia bounty gate story, which gave one last false dying breath to the war rationale, he writes. At the end of the day, Maddow's quote, ignores the massive amounts of corruption that were endemic to the American side of the mission. And his article goes on to highlight the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction some years ago identifying some $15.5 billion in waste, fraud, and abuse. And then he extrapolates these numbers. You can look at the article yourself to some 30% of the amount reviewed was lost to waste, fraud, and abuse. And when you do the math to the $2.2 trillion, the amount lost to fraud during the entire period might very likely be $600 billion or more, an awesome sum. But that may just be the tip of the iceberg, he writes, appropriately. The Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction found problem after problem with, quote-unquote, money spent to U.S. and Western contractors. We reported the same thing some years ago with the monies going to Iraq for reconstruction. Last week we talked about the hundred orders of privatizing the Iraqi economy to the benefit of multinational investment rather than the Iraqi people. But what we didn't mention last week was what we covered some years ago was the Guardian article back in February 7th of 2007, which is entitled How the U.S. Sent $12 Billion in Cash to Iraq and Watched It Vanish. There were special flights that brought in tons of these hundred dollar bill banknotes which disappeared into the war zone. The first line of the of the article reads, quote, the U.S. flew nearly 12 billion dollars in shrink-wrapped hundred dollar bills into Iraq, then distributed the cash with no proper control over who was receiving it and how it was being spent. It was the biggest transfer of cash in the history of the Federal Reserve, and the House Committee was investigating that, but nothing was reported of any substance on this matter, and it repeats itself in Afghanistan. Thanks to the sloppy reporting of Rachel Maddow and MSNBC-type medias. And the result is we repeat so many profiteering foreign interventions without merit time and time again, and the whole world, not to mention our own troops and contractors, suffer devastating outcomes. While these multinational corporate elites who hire these contractors sit in their offices thousands of miles away, out of harm's way, counting their ill-gained fortunes. So first I wanted to introduce our guest, 
and welcome Dr. Mohammed Sahimi back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Dr. Sahimi, thank you for joining us tonight. It's very good to be back in your program, Pedro. Well, Dr. Sahimi was born in Iran. He analyzes and reports on Iran and U.S.-Iran political developments, about its nuclear program, its relations with the rest of the Middle East. He is a professor of chemical engineering and materials science at the University of Southern California, and he's also the co-founder and editor of a website that has a wealth of information called Iran News and Middle East Reports. I've always been struck by the fact that, on the one hand, you left Iran due to a government that you had many very deep, critical thoughts and reflections on, but also your views are very balanced with respect to unfair criticisms of Iran and U.S.-Iranian relations. With that being said, I wanted to go back to two events and have you comment on them. But first, I wanted to bring our audience up to speed with them. I think they're really important. One was the January 3rd, 2020 assassination of General Qasim Soleimani. And the other was the airstrikes that President Biden authorized just this year, back in June 20th, 2021, basically based on the allegation used that Iran was backing Shiite-backed militia groups that had attacked U.S. forces in the area. I wanted to start with the January 3rd, 2020 assassination of General Qasim Soleimani. And there was a UN human rights investigator that had issued a report noting that the January 3rd drone attack, I believe it was Baghdad Airport, which killed General Soleimani and, and a number of others, that it violated the UN charter. She said that the U.S. had failed to provide sufficient evidence to justify the strike. She's calling for accountability for targeted killings by armed drones, like those used in the U.S. strike. And I should say, I'm speaking of Agnes Calamard. She's the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions. The violation of the international law, she said, that the attack violated the U.N. Charter in that there was no imminent threat posed to the United States. And in fact, we're actually an occupying force there. really kind of standing truth on its head. But anyhow, going back to these other points I just wanted to make real quick on this is that President Trump had authorized the strike against Soleimani months before, even though some of the criteria that was used or the main criteria was a very recent attack that they alleged was masterminded by Soleimani. On December 27th, 2019, an attack that killed a U.S. contractor and left four servicemen dead at an Iraqi military base. Soleimani was claimed to have been behind these attacks against Americans. I've never seen any evidence to suggest that. In fact, I guess what I wanted to start off with was just that this Agnes Calamard, that that is, that she wanted accountability for this attack. And calling for accountability just seems like a, a pure pipe dream when it comes to the U.S. foreign policy initiatives and desires. We have a long history of denying the international criminality of our behavior, which we have documented on a number of previous shows, and then avoiding any sanctions because we can. We're so powerful. And this is a form of bullying in which few countries ever call us out because they are, I think, afraid of financial or economic repercussions resulting from a country that has the greatest military might in the history of the world. In this case, what belies this claim is that the presidential order came well before the cited event that was claimed to justify the assassination. 
And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you to start off with, Dr. Sahimi, the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, they have been inflicting, or were at that time, inflicting great harm on ISIS. And General Qasim Soleimani, he was the, the Quds Force commander. And of course, the Quds is just like a division of the IRGC. And he was really kind of the mastermind about this war on ISIS that we claim we were always so concerned about. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Iranian involvement in Iraq fighting ISIS, whether they were invited or not? And then also, can you speak to the claims that Qasim Soleimani, somehow he was responsible or was targeting U.S. forces? Well, let me first remind you that when General Soleimani was assassinated and the Iranian government held a funeral for him, taking his body to many cities around Iran to say goodbye to people, millions of people participated in those funerals. And the reason for it was that regardless of what Iranian people thought of the political establishment in Tehran, they viewed General Soleimani as a national hero that had saved Iran from ISIS. General Soleimani played a leading role in defeating ISIS, not only in Iraq, but also in Syria. But his role in Iraq is completely undeniable. In June of 2014, when ISIS forces were only like 30 to 40 kilometers from Baghdad, and they're threatening to overrun Baghdad, the capital of Iraq, which if they had, they would have overtaken Iraq, and they would have posed an existential threat to Iran. It was General Soleimani who flew in, talked to Iraqi military leaders, as well as to uh, leaders of Iraqi Kurdish forces who were in the north and were very close to the ISIS forces. According to the interviews that a Kurdish leader gave later on, General Soleimani promised them that he would deliver weapons that they need to fight with ISIS. And less than 24 hours later, Iranian cargo planes were landing one after another in Kurdish area delivering weapons. Whereas U.S. aid, U.S. military aid, arrived in Iraq months later. Mm-hmm. In addition, General Soleimani worked with Iraq military and used Iran's Oats Force, the foreign branch of IRGC. Yeah, excuse me real quick. So you had a Shiite leader in Iraq at the time that invited, actually probably pled for the Iranian involvement. Is that correct? Oh, yes, of course. They asked him for help, and that's why he went there. But this was also a matter of national security for Iran, because if, as I said, if ISIS had overrun Baghdad and had taken control of Iraq, it would have posed a grave danger to Iran's national security. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Iraqi leaders asked Iran for help, and General Soleimani went there at their invitation. So not only he and the Oz Force provided weapons to the Kurdish fighters that began immediately fighting with ISIS, he also worked with Iraqi military leaders to train a Shiite militia consisting of tens of thousands of Iraqi Shiites to work alongside the regular Iraqi army in order to prevent ISIS from making any further progress towards Baghdad, which they did, basically put a stop to it. And then gradually they pushed him back until finally ISIS was completely defeated in Iraq. So the, the reason Iranian people respected him 
was exactly because of that, because they recognized that if it weren't for what Soleimani did regarding ISIS in Iraq, Iran would have been in grave danger. And at the minimum, ISIS would have tried to infiltrate Iran and stage terrorist attacks and totally destabilize the country. Mm-hmm. So he played a, a fundamental role in, in the defeat of ISIS in Iraq. And of course, Iran supported the government of President Bashar al-Assad in Syria and a major part of the forces that were fighting the central government in Syria was also ISIS forces. And there also two Shiite militias that had been organized by General Soleimani and, and the Hots Force, one consisting of Shiites in Afghanistan and one consisting of Shiites in Pakistan mm. that Iran had trained and armed and had sent to Syria, uh, were fighting side by side with the Syrian army. And they also played a major role in defeating the remaining ISIS forces in Syria. So what is not acknowledged is in this country is that mm-hmm. it was Soleimani who played a fundamental role in defeating ISIS, both in Syria and Iraq. And not just a fundamental role, but a decisive role, right? I mean, there's exactly. Probably, there's a, nobody, a, yeah, there's, exactly, a decisive role. Mm-hmm. And, and I emphasize that General Soleimani might have had political views that uh, I don't agree with it. But this is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the decisive role that he played in defeating of ISIS, which was a menace not only to Iran, but to the whole Middle East and uh, in, a, in a larger frame of thought, the entire world. But this is not something that is acknowledged in, in this country. That's one point I wanted to make. The other point. Can I ask you a real quick question before you sure. get to your second point? It seems to me that what's also not acknowledged is that the main forces that we've used to fight Assad and throughout much of our history has been terrorist forces, i.e. forces that terrorize the civilian populations of those countries. And so here you have a guy that's killing so many of these ISIS and Al-Qaeda-type villains and terrorists, and it's almost like that may have been a reason to assassinate him is to try to create conditions in which what we call adversaries, but really have been very much been on the same side of what we've been trying to do to keep ISIS and Al-Qaeda type villains and terrorists a viable force. I mean, I, I don't mean to be like a conspiracy theorist, but certainly if we know that these terrorists have played an integral part as a proxy force in our aspirations in the Middle East, can you just, in your remarks, whether you want to go on to your second point first, but come back to that, just how much these terrorist forces have been more on the side of what we're doing, yet we've been telling the American public that that's why we're there is to fight them. Of course. I mean, we know that President Obama ordered CIA to train the so-called Free Syrian Army to fight with the government of Bashar al-Assad. But we also know, according to many, many reports by credible forces, both here in the United States and elsewhere, that almost all those forces that were supposedly trained and armed by the CIA joined terrorist groups that were fighting with the government of Bashar al-Assad. In fact, this free Syrian army was existing only on paper. They never played a very important role in fighting the Syrian government. It was all those terrorist groups, uh, Ahrar al-Sham, Jabhat al-Nusra, 
and so on that were doing the bulk of fighting in Syria. And these are all terrorist groups. Jabhat al-Nusra, for example, was basically the Syrian branch of al-Qaeda. In fact, at the very beginning of the war, uh, declared its loyalty to the al-Qaeda leadership. Mm. Ahrar al-Sham was another, another group, another Islamic terrorist group. We also know, based on what then-Vice President Joe Biden said uh, in October of 2014 at Harvard University, that our allies in the region, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia, supported this terrorist group. Joe Biden at that time said that when the war started in Syria, our allies declared that they are willing to, to provide funds and training and weapons to anybody who was uh, willing to fight with the Syrian government. But unfortunately, that's what he said, unfortunately, the only forces that were fighting with Bashar al-Assad were terrorist forces, and our allies were supporting them. I mean, this, mm. is, this is what he said. A record of it exists. So we know that most of those forces, almost all those forces, were terrorist groups that were supported by our allies in that part of the region. And, on the other hand, forces that were trained by General Soleimani and uh, Iran's IRGC were fighting on the side of the Syrian government, which was, and it still is, the legal, internationally recognized government of, of Syria. And to your point, it seems to me, as you're speaking, when you're talking about the Free Syrian Army, the FSA, they seem like they're much like the 300,000 Afghani military that seem to just disappear when there's any type of combat. Exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah. a lot of them got the money and weapons and disappeared, and a lot of them joined the terrorist groups. And now, now at this stage, those forces, those Syrian, uh, free Syrian army, have actually become the uh, food soldiers for the Turkish government that has occupied the uh, northern part of Syria in order to supposedly control Syrian Kurds from inciting the Kurdish population inside Turkey. So they are now fighting on behalf of Turkey that is occupying their own countries, the northern part of their own country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and your, your analogy with Afghanistan National Army is perfect. We just know over the past two, three weeks uh, what happened to that Afghan National Army that we spent $90 billion over the past 20 years to the tune of $2.2 billion a year to train and arm to supposedly fight with Taliban. And uh, after the first serious attacks by the Taliban, the whole army collapsed. And the reason for it, as many people reported it on the Internet, was that that wasn't really an army. It was basically a a job program provided by by the United States so that these young Afghan uh, men would have something to do. But they were never uh, a serious force to fight with Taliban. Mm-hmm. And Taliban are, you know, a force that has been fighting for decades now. They were part of the Mujahideen uh, that were fighting the uh, Afghan central government and the Soviet forces that were backing them in 1980s. Then in the Afghan civil war from 1992 to 1996. And then they started fighting after the U.S. occupied Afghanistan in the fall of 2001. So this is a battle-hardened group of fighters that Taliban have. So the National Army was no match for them, right, uh, even right. though we have spent, as I said, $90 billion to train and arm them. And now a lot of those weapons, modern weapons, mm-hmm. that we provided the Afghan National Army 
are in the hands of Taliban. Right. And what the Taliban are going to do with it uh, is not clear, but definitely that's a serious threat. So back to discussion that we had about General Soleimani, the claim by the Trump administration, uh, and in particular President Trump himself, and his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, that there was an imminent threat by Soleimani against U.S. forces in Iraq, and that's why they assassinated him. It's, it's total nonsense. First of all, the political establishment in the United States, at least part of the political establishment, had wanted to assassinate General Soleimani for years. Ten years ago, a decade ago, I published a profile of the life of General Soleimani on the Tehran Bureau, uh, Frontline Tehran Bureau website, and the article started by the threats that American generals had made against him when they were testifying before a U.S. Senate. So this goes back at least 10, 11 years. But President Obama resisted it. He thought that, you know, assassinating a high official of another country when we are not in formal war with them is not an appropriate uh, action to take. But Mike Pompeo, uh, whose mission in life is trying to destroy Iran, convinced President Trump that he needs to assassinate General Soleimani. And they went ahead with it. And as you said, this is not only a violation of UN Charter, because no member of UN can attack another member of UN without declaring war, without authorization by Security Council and so on. It is also state-sponsored terrorism because simply the U.S. government carried out an illegal assassination. This is regardless of how view of General Soleimani. We may not like Soleimani. We may not like what he does. There are significant number of Iranians who didn't like General Soleimani because he, they thought that he was an ally of Iran's hardliner. Mm-hmm. But in fact, General Soleimani never intervened in Iranian politics within the country. Mm-hmm. He was a soldier, he was a professional soldier, whose main goal was to defend Iran and expand Iran's influence throughout the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And that's what they didn't like about Soleimani. He was trying to expand Iran's influence uh, in the Middle East, and they didn't like it. So they assassinated him. And as you pointed out, and others pointed out, this was illegal, this was against international law, this was against UN Charter, and this was against many other international treaties. Right. Again, this is Agnes Calamard. She was a UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions. This is not just an opinion piece. This is people that are responsible for making such judgments and then justifying those judgments, which she did in her report. Dr. Sahimi, before we go on, we need to take a quick break for some announcements. We'll be right back. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. Back in a flash. 